All right, I want to welcome everyone who is joining us for worship today through our online campus. Thanks so much for being a part of this service. If you've got a Bible handy, I want you to grab it and go with me to the Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter, and just hold that ready for a few minutes. This is the second week of a brief sermon series called Messy. And the simple premise behind this sermon series called Messy is that if you're going to live like Jesus, which is the will of God for all of us, then you're going to find yourself at different times in conversations and relationships that, quite honestly, can be a little messy. That was often the case with Jesus because Jesus was a friend of sinners, which is something that he was criticized for over and over again during his earthly life, primarily by the Uh, or exclusively, I guess I should say, by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious people. And here's the deal. Jesus was very aware of their criticism. In fact, on one occasion, this is Luke chapter 7 and verse 34, Jesus actually says these words, the Son of Man, that's how Jesus liked to refer to himself, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." Jesus was a friend of sinners. And we love that truth about him because we love the application in our own lives. Jesus was a friend of sinners like us. But what we need to understand is that can't be the end of the story for us as believers, as followers of Jesus. We need to not just acknowledge the reality that he was a friend of sinners, but we need to follow his example and be a friend of sinners ourselves. And in order to do that, uh, we really need to understand the different ways that Jesus was a friend to sinners. We see five examples in Luke's gospel, and what I'm going to do during our time together is I'm going to work my way through all five of them, but I'm going to go through the first four very quickly and then spend a little time on the final one, the fifth one, and uh, we're going to spend some time there in part because that's going to be the most familiar story of all with regard to Jesus being called a friend of sinners. But uh, let's begin. I've got my Bible open. Uh, I've got my Bible marked at Luke chapter 19, which is where we're going to uh, see our text in just a minute. But I'm going to begin in my Bible in Luke chapter 5, highlighting in particular verses 27 through 32. This is the story of Jesus calling Matthew, who is a tax collector, to come and follow him and to become one of his disciples. The initial call happens in verse 27, and after that, Matthew throws a big dinner party for Jesus at his house, and there is a large crowd of tax collectors and other sinners who are at the dinner party. When the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saw that, they complained about the company that Jesus was keeping. And this was Jesus' reply. This is Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we see that Jesus was a friend of sinners because, quite frankly, quite simply, Jesus cared about lost people. And clearly, that wasn't the case for everyone. Clearly, that wasn't the case for even the most religious people of his day. The second passage, the next one, is found in Luke chapter 7, and it's verses 31 through 35. Uh, This is an interesting passage that honestly requires more context for explanation than we have time to give, but let me just give you a 
a bit of a paraphrase for the passage. Uh, Jesus is rebuking in this passage what he calls the people of this generation because they rejected John the Baptist and would ultimately reject him, but for completely different reasons. Listen to what verses 31 through 34 say. This is Luke chapter 7, verses 31 through 34. Jesus is speaking. He says, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not cry. And then he goes on to say, For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, that's Jesus' reference to himself again, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, and we heard these words a moment ago, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus concludes by saying, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. Now, what does all that mean? Well, Jesus is basically saying that the people rejected John the Baptist for being too tight, and they were rejecting him for being too loose. The bottom line was the hearts of these people were corrupt, and they were going to find a way to criticize or reject whoever God sent to them. This is the passage And the reason why this is in our list, this is the passage where we actually get the phrase, friend of sinners. And when that was first spoken about Jesus, and Jesus is just repeating what's been said about him in the passage, when that was first spoken about Jesus, in the beginning it was an insult. It was an insult directed at Jesus by the religious leaders who were his enemies. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't own and embrace the title, friend of sinners, and That doesn't mean we shouldn't celebrate that truth about Jesus, that he was a friend of sinners. But there are two ways to understand Jesus as a friend of sinners. One of them is bad and one of them is good. And so the question is, which way do you understand that phrase? Do you understand the phrase, Jesus was a friend of sinners from the standpoint of religious people who look down on sinners? Or do you understand the phrase, Jesus was a friend of sinners from Jesus' own perspective because he cared about sinners? The bottom line is you can't say that you understand it as something that's good and then end up living your life as a follower of Christ who has absolutely no regard or concern for lost people. And that's really what we learn in that that passage from Luke chapter 7. The next passage is also in Luke chapter 7. It's verses 36 through 50. So right after that incident where Jesus uh, rebukes the people for rejecting John the Baptist, a Pharisee in the crowd named Simon steps out and invites Jesus to come to his home to have dinner with him. And so Jesus goes. He goes to the Pharisee's house, and he's there at the home. He's reclining at a table when all of a sudden a woman who had lived a very sinful life crashes the dinner party. And when she crashes the dinner party, she ends up anointing Jesus with perfume. But Simon, the Pharisee who is hosting the party, is put off by this woman's actions. And he says in Luke chapter 7 and verse 39 about Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus gives his reply to Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7, verses 40 through 47. I want you to listen as I read those verses. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. 
Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, really, it's verse 47 that is the key to understanding what's happening here. Jesus says to Simon the Pharisee in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Now, it's easy to misunderstand that verse, so let me just explain it to you. Jesus isn't suggesting that we commit many sins so we can somehow love God more. He's teaching Simon the Pharisee, who was supposed to be a righteous man, he's teaching Simon the Pharisee a lesson about his need for forgiveness, about Simon's need for forgiveness. Simon looked at this woman as a sinner, but he didn't see himself that way. He didn't see any need in his own life for forgiveness. And so that's why Jesus says what he does in verses 46, or 44 through 46. Notice the contrast. He's talking to Simon, and he says, when I came into your house, you did not give me water for my feet. You didn't feel any obligation to do that. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. You didn't feel any obligation to do that. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put any oil on my head. You didn't feel any obligation to do that. But she has poured perfume on my feet. See the contrast between the two. And the simple lesson that Jesus is trying to teach, Simon, is the more you understand your need for forgiveness the more you're able to love. The more you understand your need for forgiveness, the more you will love Jesus. See, Jesus was a friend of sinners because he knew that sinners, people who knew they were sinners, understood the depth of their need. The next passage, the fourth one, is in Luke chapter 15. And really it's, virtually the entire chapter, but I'm just going to highlight verses 1 and 2. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And here's the deal, friends. Jesus, who knew all things, even the thoughts and the attitude of people, he knew what those Pharisees and those tax collectors were thinking. He knew what they were muttering to one another. And so what he does in Luke chapter 15 is he goes on to tell three stories, three parables that basically each describe how God is a seeking God, how God seeks out the lost and how pleased God is when the lost are found. And the most significant of those three parables is one of the most familiar parables in the Bible, and that's the parable of the prodigal son. And so what we learned here is that Jesus is a friend of of sinners, quite frankly, because God is a seeking God. And that brings us to the fifth and the final passage 
that I want to look at in Luke's gospel, and that's found in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and that is the familiar story of a man named Zacchaeus. If you've got your Bibles open there, I want you to just follow along as I read the story. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and conclude in verse 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today... Salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Well, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, are pretty familiar with the story of Zacchaeus. And I'm sure most of us would say the same thing that I will say, and that is I love the story of Zacchaeus. And I love it for a variety of different reasons. Uh, For the purpose of our time together, I will tell you that I've got four reasons why I love the story of Zacchaeus, and they're really basic and really simple. First, I love it because it's a familiar story. If you grew up in church uh, like I did, the story of Zacchaeus was probably one of the first Bible stories that you learned, and the really cool part about the story of Zacchaeus is that it came with its own soundtrack. I mean, who didn't grow up in Sunday school and not learn Uh, and sing the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, and you can go on and on and on. That was probably uh, one of my favorite songs as a child, and probably one of the favorites of children even today. We're familiar with uh, the story, and because of that, uh, we love the story. The second reason why we love the story is because it's a hopeful story. Uh, One of the best parts of the story is when Zacchaeus, who, because he was short, couldn't see Jesus over the crowd, decided he was going to climb up in a sycamore tree so they could get a better look at Jesus as he passed by. Uh, But the really amazing thing of the story is not so much that Zacchaeus climbed up in a tree to get a good look at Jesus. The really amazing thing in the story is that Jesus stopped and looked up and saw Zacchaeus. It wasn't that Zacchaeus saw Jesus. It was that Jesus took the time to see Zacchaeus. Uh, It's not unusual for someone to go to great lengths to see someone who is famous. Maybe you've been in a situation or a setting where there's been somebody famous uh, and you have pushed your way through the crowd or you've done everything you can to get a good vantage point so you can get a glimpse of somebody who was a famous athlete or some kind of entertainer or something like that. That's not an uncommon thing. People do just about anything to get a glimpse of someone who is famous. But how many times do famous people see or notice regular people. That's something altogether different. But that's what happens here. Jesus took the time to notice Zacchaeus. That's not something that happens very often. A couple of years ago, my wife Sandy and I drove to Augusta, Georgia, so that we could be at a practice round for the Masters. The Masters, which is arguably the most famous 
and uh, the most honored golf tournament in the country. We got there really early in the morning, and so we were through the gates right when they opened. The first thing we did was walk the back nine and look at all the holes on the back nine of the golf course because those are the holes that I was most familiar with. Uh, Later, we uh, found players that we were familiar with, and we followed some of the players for a few holes. Then we positioned ourselves at a strategic place on the back nine where we could watch the players hitting tee shots on the par 3 16th hole and then hitting their tee shots on the par 4 17th hole. And it was really cool because uh, if you're familiar with the practice round at the Masters, uh, the par 3 16th hole is uh, over water. And so after the players will hit their tee shots in the practice round, then they'll go up to the edge of the water and they'll take turns trying to skip the ball across the water and get it on the green. And it's a lot of fun for everybody who's there. Finally, we went to the driving range to watch and then we went to the putting green. That was the last thing we did before we left. And when we were walking toward the putting green, I noticed that right up front, right at the ropes, There was an open space, so I grabbed her, and we went up there as quickly as we could. We got there right up against the ropes, and uh, we were really close to the players because we were really close to one edge of the putting green, and the first thing I did was look out uh, across the putting green at all the different players that I noticed, all the different ones that I recognized. I was pointing them out to Sandy, and I was saying different names, and then I happened to just look to my right and notice that I was actually only standing about five or six feet away from a golfer named Bernhard Langer. He's a German golfer who is really well known and uh, who is a committed Christian, a very committed believer. And I've always admired him and I've always followed him when he played on the PGA Tour and now he plays on what they call the Champions Tour. And I, I turned to Sandy and I said, hey, look, there's Bernhard Langer. And uh, I'm sure because he was so close and because I, I said it so loudly that he heard what I said. It wasn't an unusual thing. I saw him and I immediately said to Sandy, there he is. What would have really been unusual is if he would have turned and looked at me and said, hey, you're Chris Philbeck. And then went on to say something like, didn't I see you about six tables away from me a few years ago when I was in Greenwood, Indiana, sharing my testimony at an FCA breakfast? That would have been really unusual. That's the kind of thing that doesn't happen very often. It wasn't that unusual that Zacchaeus, in his desire desire to see Jesus, went to incredible lengths to do it by climbing a tree so he could look down. What was really unusual is that Jesus, in the middle of the crowd, with everything going on, stopped and took the time to notice Zacchaeus. But that's what Jesus does. That's who Jesus is. The very last verse of the story of Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 says, and this is Jesus speaking, says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus can't do that. He can't seek us and save us if he doesn't see us. And that's one of the reasons why we love the story of Zacchaeus. It's a hopeful story. We believe Jesus sees us. It reminds us that Jesus sees us. The third reason why we love the story of Zacchaeus is because Zacchaeus had a sudden or immediate conversion. If you know the story, after Jesus looks up in the tree and notices Zacchaeus, he says, listen, I need to go to your house. And uh, Zacchaeus comes down and takes Jesus to his home as his guest. And then in the middle, later in the story, in the middle of what must have been like a lunch buffet that Zacchaeus put out for Jesus, 
all of a sudden, Zacchaeus stands up and he makes this public profession in front of everybody that makes it obvious and clear that a profound change has happened to him on the inside. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 8, he stands up and says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, this wasn't Zacchaeus trying somehow to buy forgiveness of sin, to buy salvation with a good deed, this was nothing less than evidence of a genuine change that was happening or that had happened inside of him. This was the evidence of what we might call genuine repentance. I mean, repentance is uh, uh, the, the Greek word metanaeo. It means to change your mind literally, and the idea is it's changing your mind in a way that changes your life. One of the most common ways we describe repentance is to turn around. Uh, to turn around and go the other way. Whatever, your direction, whatever direction your life is going in, you stop, you turn around, and you go the other way. And that's what was happening here with Zacchaeus. That's what he does. His entire life had been about taking money from people, and now he's turning around and going the opposite way and saying he's going to give money back to people. And so we love the story of Zacchaeus because it's a story of sudden and immediate conversion. If it can happen to Zacchaeus, it can happen to anybody. The fourth reason why we love this story is because it's a happy ending story. Who doesn't love a story with a happy ending? After Zacchaeus stands up and makes his claim that we just talked about in verse 8 about what he was going to do with the money, Jesus makes this statement. Today, this is verses 9 and 10, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And then he says, for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. This is a perfect story of salvation because salvation, think about it with me, salvation is being found by Jesus, it's being forgiven by Jesus, and it's being set free from the power of sin by Jesus. And all of that happens to Zacchaeus in this story. He was found by Jesus, Jesus took the time to see him, to notice him, he was forgiven by Jesus. And he was set free from the power of sin by Jesus. See, the thing that had Zacchaeus' heart, the thing that had tangled him up in his life was money and materialism because they were the only things probably that gave some sense of significance and security to his life. And so the love and the pursuit of money had gotten a hold of his heart and dominated his life. But when he met Jesus, all of that changed. And how great was it that Zacchaeus made this public profession of this change right after all the people outside were muttering about Jesus, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner, because that made it possible for Jesus to respond by simply saying what he did at the very end of the passage in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. They're, the religious people are muttering about Jesus, he's a friend of sinners, and Jesus basically says, well, that's perfect, because I came for sinners, I came to seek and to save people who were lost. How can you not love the story of Zacchaeus for all four of those reasons and probably many, many more? And the truth is, it would be easy to just end this message right there. But before we go, I got to be honest with you and tell you that I got a couple of questions. I got a couple of questions that I think really need to be answered about the story of Zacchaeus. And the first one is this. I mean, I believe all the things that I, I just shared with you, those 
reasons why I love the story of Zacchaeus, I'm, I'm good with all of those. Maybe one of them I have some questions about, but I'm good with all of those. But I, I, I've got some questions that need to be answered. The first one is, what do you think Jesus and Zacchaeus talked about in their time together? I mean, when, when Jesus and Zacchaeus spent time together, while it was, while they were walking on their way to Zacchaeus' home or while they were there in his home having lunch together or whether it was some other time in their encounter that we're not told about in the story, what do you think it was that they talked about? As I looked through the story, we just read it together and I read it more times than I would venture to guess, and I'm sure many of you would say the same thing. As we look at the story, there's nothing at all in the story to indicate that Jesus ever took advantage of the opportunity to preach to Zacchaeus. We don't read anything about that. All we really know is that the two of them were together. Let me tell you what I think happened. I don't think Jesus needed to preach to Zacchaeus not in the traditional way. And I say that because have you ever noticed that when one person is open with another person, the other person becomes open too? I guess another way to say it would be disclosure begets disclosure or disclosure results in disclosure. And here's what I think happened. I think Jesus just simply gave Zacchaeus his time and his attention. I think he looked at Zacchaeus like no one had ever looked at him before. And I think he listened to Zacchaeus like no one had ever listened to him before. And that's what made the difference in Zacchaeus' life. Now, honestly, there may have been times in their encounter that we don't read about in the story where Jesus asked Zacchaeus some questions. And these are the kind of questions that I imagine in my mind Jesus asking Zacchaeus. He might have said something like this, hey, tell me about you. What's your story? Or he might have said, tell me how you got to be a chief tax collector. How did you make all your money? Or he might have said something like this, tell me, are you happy in your life the way it is today? Are you feeling fulfilled and satisfied? Are you happy with the direction of your life? Whether or not he asked those questions, the key is Jesus spent some time with Zacchaeus, and no doubt as he spent time with Zacchaeus, Jesus listened to Zacchaeus. And I want us to think about that for a minute because I think it has a powerful application in our lives as believers as we try to follow the example of Jesus who was a friend of sinners. You're wrong if you think you can't be involved in leading others to Christ because you don't know enough about the Bible or because you're not gifted enough when it comes to talking to other people. I really believe that caring enough about someone to value them, to spend time with them, and to listen to them 
are the most powerful elements when it comes to having an opportunity to lead someone to Christ. Now, that's not to say that you don't need to take the time to learn what the Bible says specifically about how someone needs to come to Jesus, about what Jesus offers with regard to salvation and how someone can experience that salvation. I think that's the responsibility of all of us. I mean, I think about a verse in the book of Romans. It's Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, where the apostle Paul writes and he is And he says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard, note this, through the word of Christ. Listen to it again. Paul says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard, and here it is, through the word of Christ. That word, word, there in the verse, word of Christ, is an interesting word in the original language of the New Testament. It's the Greek word rhema. R-H-E-M-A is the English rendering. And the Greek word rhema refers to a verse or a portion of Scripture that speaks to our current situation or our current need. And so when the word rhema is used to describe the Word of God or the Word of Christ, then what's being referenced is a very specific word. And so I think everyone who's a believer needs to educate themselves, needs to equip themselves with the ability to tell someone else the truth about who Jesus is, what Jesus did when he came into this world, what he accomplished when he died on the cross, when he rose from the dead, and how he can give you the promise of forgiveness of sin and eternal life. But honestly, folks, I'm telling you, that's not a complicated thing. Everyone can equip themselves with that knowledge. And you don't have to be the most articulate and the most gifted speaker, the most eloquent speaker in the world to be able to share that information. You just have to have the information and you just have to share it knowing that God will take it and do with it what needs to be done. The bottom line is leading someone else to Christ, sharing spiritual influence with someone, being involved in personal evangelism, whatever terminology you want to use to describe it is something that anyone can do, anyone, even you. You just have to be willing to care enough about someone to value them, spend time with them, and listen to them, develop a friendship with them, discover their story. And I believe that's what Jesus did with Zacchaeus. I don't think Zacchaeus made that proclamation of faith made that proclamation of repentance and change in his life because Jesus delivered an incredibly powerful message to him. He very well may have. We don't read about that in the story. I think the main thing that happened is that Jesus took the time to see Zacchaeus and to care about him and to listen to him, to value him. And that's what we should be doing, all of us, with our lives as we go through life. The second question I've got written down here is this. How sudden was Zacchaeus' conversion, really? How sudden was Zacchaeus' conversion, really? You know, a little earlier when I was sharing the four reasons why I love the story of Zacchaeus, I said that reason number three was because Zacchaeus had a sudden or immediate conversion. That's the way it appears when you read the story. That's the way I've always thought about the story of Zacchaeus. But honestly, let's revisit that for a minute. 
when Jesus entered the city of Jericho, do you think he entered the city of Jericho, of Jericho having already decided, I'm going to look for the worst person in the entire city. I'm going to look for the meanest person. I'm going to look for the rottenest person. I'm going to look for the most dishonest person. I'm going to look for the most despised person in the entire city of Jericho, the worst person I can find, and I'm going to use them as a demonstration of the saving power of God. Do you think that's what was on Jesus' mind? I don't. I, I'm, I'm, I'm rethinking the way I've always viewed Zacchaeus' conversion as a sudden conversion, an immediate conversion. What if Jesus walked into the city of Jericho looking specifically for Zacchaeus because he knew Zacchaeus was the hungriest person, the most ready person, the most open man in town? How sudden was Zacchaeus' conversion, really? You know, conversion can be a long time coming. We, we talk sometimes in our terminology about a, a woman who is pregnant and had a, a baby, and the baby was born suddenly. But no babies are born suddenly. The mother is pregnant for nine months. There's a period of time leading up to the birth. And the truth is, there are a lot of people, I'm sure, there are a lot of people that most of us see and even talk to almost every single day of our lives that God has been working on for a long, long time. He's been leading them. He's been seeking them and leading them and prodding them and convicting them for a long, long time. They just need someone to come along who will play the final part in their conversion story. Another way to say it might be they just need someone who will stop and look up and see them the same way Jesus did with Zacchaeus. God is a seeking God. That's one of the most fundamental truths that we learn about him in the scriptures. God is a seeking God. And you and I will never know what God has been doing, how God has been working behind the scenes in someone's life if we're unwilling to take the risk or the time to look up and see the person that God has been looking at, looking for, for a long, long time. And this is where life can sometimes get messy because chances are the person you look up and the person you notice, the person you see, just like Zacchaeus, will come with a lot of baggage. Who doesn't? Who doesn't have a lot of baggage in their life? I mean, think of some of the most famous people in the Bible that God pursued, some of the most famous people in the Bible that God used in powerful ways. Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a cheat. David was an adulterer. Rahab was a harlot. Peter was a coward. Paul was an elitist, and you can go on and on and on. And the truth is, most of us as believers, we need to create a new comfort zone for our lives. We've been living in this comfort zone of only surrounding ourselves with other Christians, with only interacting with other Christians, with building, whether we know it or not, a wall between us and people who don't walk with Jesus in the same way that we do. We need to create a new comfort zone and we need to embrace 
what it really means to be a friend of sinners, what we've seen in Jesus' life when it comes to being a friend of sinners. And what that means at the end of the day is we just need to be willing to love people the way Jesus loved people, to notice people the way Jesus noticed people, to welcome into our lives people the way Jesus welcomed them into his life. Will it be messy? Probably. Will every relationship result in the same experience Zacchaeus had? Probably not. Is it the life that God has called us to live? Absolutely, without question. Can you do it? You can. You can. I believe you can. Because I believe you, whoever you are, I believe you can love and care about someone who is lost in a way that can ultimately change their life. Because that's what Jesus does. And that's what he calls us to do. There's power in caring about people. I'm going to close with a sermon illustration that is really old. Chances are, if you've been in church any length of time, you've heard it before. I mean, it goes way back in my history as a preacher, but I'm going to use it anyway because it's simple and it has a powerful point. In the 1840s and 1850s, Major portions of the United States of America were dominated by the institution of slavery, and it was expanding fast. On one occasion, a young congressman from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln heard about a slave slave auction that was being held near where he lived, and so he went. He stood on the edge of the slave auction just watching. He watched as one after another, black Americans were led onto the block and auctioned off. And finally, he noticed a young slave woman who was led up to the auction block. The bidding started, and surprisingly, Lincoln bid. Somebody outbid him, and he bid higher. Somebody outbid him, and he bid higher. And before you knew it, the auctioneer said, sold. They took the young woman off the auction block and brought her to Lincoln, and he said to let her loose from her chains. And then he looked at the young woman, and he said, now you're free. And she looked up with him, at him with a curious look on her face, and she said, free? What does it mean to be free? And Lincoln says, it means you can think anything you want, you can say anything you want, you can go anywhere you want. And when that really sunk into the young woman, she began to cry. And when she got her composure, she looked up at Lincoln and she said, then I think I'll go with you. This is why Jesus made the long journey from heaven to earth. He made it to find us. He made it to forgive us. And he made it to set us free from the power of sin. That's what he wants for everyone. But he actually needs our help. He needs our help in the relationships that we have. He needs our help with the people who are in the network of our lives He needs our help by us simply being willing, like Jesus was that day in Jericho, to look up and see and notice someone with a need, and then to love and care about that person in a way that allows God to change their life. And I want to be that kind of person. And I hope you want to be that kind of person as well.
It might be messy. We'll have to step out of our comfort zone and create a new comfort zone. But it'll be worth it for all eternity. I want you to pray with me. Father, thank you for the story of Zacchaeus. And thank you for the reminder all through this first several chapters of the Gospel of Luke that Jesus, he really is a friend of sinners. Sinners like us. Sinners like our next door neighbor and the person that shares the office with us or has the office down the hall, the person that uh, we sit in the bleachers with at our kids' soccer games, and on and on and on. And help us be willing to step out of our comfort zone and notice and see people who need to hear the truth about Jesus in a way that changes their life. And help us to know that the main thing that we have to do is just to love them and care about them. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.